We are returning once again this morning to our studies in the book of Psalms. So let me invite you to turn there again today and particularly this time to Psalm 106. Psalm 106, and we will read it all the way through to the end. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord or can show forth all His praise? How blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, in your favor toward your people. Visit me with your salvation, that I may see the prosperity of your chosen ones that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. We have sinned like our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have behaved wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. Thus he rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up, and he led them through the deeps, as through the wilderness. So he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them, and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their adversaries, not one of them was left. Then they believed his words, they sang his praise. They quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. So he gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. When they became envious of Moses in the camp and of Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and engulfed the company of Abiram, and a fire blazed up in their company. The flame consumed the wicked." They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a molten image. Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their creator who had done great things in Egypt, wonders in the land of Ham and awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them had not Moses his chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe in his word, but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Therefore he swore to them that he would cast them down in the wilderness, and that he would cast their seed among the nations and scatter them in the lands. They joined themselves also to Baal Peor, and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds, and the plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and interposed, and so the plague was stayed, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness to all generations forever. They also provoked him to wrath at the waters of Meribah, so that it went hard with Moses on their account. Because they were rebellious against his spirit, he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with the blood. 
Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his inheritance. Then he gave them into the hand of the nations and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them and they were subdued under their power. Many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel and so sank down in their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry and he remembered his covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. He also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Father, I pray that you would so work and so speak through this psalm that we would come to the end and say, Amen. Praise the Lord. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were with us Wednesday evening for Psalm 105, you may have noticed just now a similarity between these two psalms, namely that both of them contain long historical sections. Both Psalm 105 and Psalm 106 give quite a number of verses to the recounting of Old Testament history. And furthermore, both of these rehearsals of the Israelites' history placard before us the faithfulness of God to his people across the years. Both Psalms are about the faithfulness of God to his people all across the years. That is the theme of Psalm 105 and of Psalm 106, God's faithfulness to his covenant and to his covenant people. And yet there is a difference between the Psalms and particularly in the way that they approach the history that they tell. And the difference is that while Psalm 105 focuses on the theme of God's faithfulness to bring his people into the land of promise according to the covenant he made with Abraham, Psalm 106 focuses on the theme of God's faithfulness to his people in spite of generation after generation of rebellion and sin. Psalm 105 focuses on God's faithfulness to bring his people into the land of promise through many different difficulties and trials and triumphs because he made a covenant with Abraham that that's what he would do. Psalm 106 focuses on God's faithfulness to his people even in spite of the fact that they kept rebelling against him again and again and again. Just to tease that out a little bit further, Psalm 105 focuses on God's faithfulness to the covenant promise that he made to Abraham. Just look at that psalm with me, verses 8 through 11. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. Those are the topic sentences for the early history of Israel as it's retold in Psalm 105. 
And the rest of the psalm records how God protected his people, how God rescued his people, how God fed them in the wilderness and brought them through many trials and many difficulties and many successes finally to the promised land. All of it because he remained faithful to his promise to Abraham in verse 11, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. And so so Psalm 105 is, if you will, a very bright and encouraging psalm. God triumphing on behalf of his people and bringing them finally to their rest in the land of promise. But Psalm 106, while it also presents the hope-giving truth of God's faithfulness, Psalm 106 is set against a much darker backdrop, as you heard. In Psalm 106, the Holy Spirit wants us to see not only the faithfulness of God to His covenant and to His people, but especially He wants us to see how God remains faithful to His covenant and His people, even when those people are draped in the filthy garments of sin. And oh, were the Israelites ever so often draped in those rags. They rebelled by the sea, verse 7. They quickly forgot His works, verse 13, and tempted God in the desert, verse 14. They became envious of Moses, in verse 16. They made a calf in Horeb, verse 19, and worshipped a molten image. They despised the pleasant land, verse 24, the land of promise. They even, verse 37, sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. Here is the backdrop for the faithfulness of God in Psalm 106. It's not just that God is faithful, that is true and that's marvelous, but God is faithful even to people who, verse 39, became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. They became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. Nevertheless, verse 44, Nevertheless, here's a great theme, perhaps the great theme of this psalm. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. Here's the great theme of this psalm. God's faithfulness to his people in spite of their sin. In fact, that's one of the great themes of the Bible, isn't it? God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5. He saved us, Titus 3, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. And that's what the Israelites found too. Even while they were still sinning against Him, God had compassion on His people and was ever ready to hear their cries of repentance. And so often, He rescued them just like He rescues us, according to His mercy. That is the theme of Psalm 106, God's mercy, His faithfulness to His people, even in spite of their sin. And that will be our theme this morning. But having said all of that, and before we dive much deeper into this psalm, it's important to think about when this psalm was written, to understand the background just a little bit. Psalm 106 records a good deal of Israelite history that took place between the books of Exodus and Judges in the Old Testament. But it doesn't appear that the psalm was actually written during that time period between Exodus and the Judges. 
Rather, Psalm 106 was written, as verse 6 reminds us, when the Israelites had turned against God once again, just like they had done in times of old. We have sinned like our fathers. He's going to go on and describe how their fathers sinned, but he's living in a different generation. He's recalling past sin, and now he's saying at a later date, we have sinned like our fathers. In other words, the psalmist is recalling the history of his Israelite forefathers, all this history of God's prior faithfulness to his people in spite of their sins, because in his own day, they have gone and done it again. In his own day, they need God to be good to them again. In spite of their sin. We have sinned like our fathers, the psalmist says in verse 6. And then after rehearsing how his father sinned and how God was merciful to them in times of old for the next 40 verses, the psalmist then pleads in verse 47a that God would do it again. Save us, O Lord our God. Our fathers have done all this sinning and you saved them. Save us. O Lord, our God. And then the rest of that verse gives us a pretty strong hint as to exactly when the psalmist was living and from what he and his people needed saving. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Gather us from among the nations, the psalmist says. And when were God's Old Testament people scattered among the nations? Well, during the period of exile, right? Near the end of the Old Testament history. As the years went on from the history that's recorded here in verses 7 through 43, the Old Testament people of God continued in much the same vein. Periods of rebellion followed by repentance and restoration and mercy followed by more years of rebellion. And eventually, as God had promised them in the days of Moses, the promised land spewed them out. Some of them were carted away by the cruel Assyrians and others were carried away into exile by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon. And the psalmist seems to be writing from that position of exile because he's asking the Lord in verse 47 to bring him and his people back to the land that was promised to Abraham. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations. And that's what verses 4 and 5 are about too. Remember me, O Lord, in your favor toward your people. Visit me with your salvation, that I may see the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. He is trusting that the Lord is going to bring the people back, that he is going to give them prosperity again, and he's asking, Lord, let me live long enough to see it. Gather us. Verse 47, from among the nations. And so the psalm begins and ends with praises for the goodness of God and then prayers that he, in the days of exile, will show it again to his stumbling people. And sandwiched in the middle is this long history of the ugliness of sin, continually overcome by the beauty of God's grace which proves the goodness of God, which the psalmist praises at the beginning and end of the psalm, and which gives hope toward his prayers that God will do it again. We'll come back to the praises and the prayers before we conclude, but before we do, it would be helpful perhaps just to walk back through the history, to walk back through verses 6 
through 46 and to see just how often Israel rebelled and just how great was their sin so that we can appreciate all the more just how amazing is God's grace. So let's just walk back through uh, verses 7 through 46 and remind ourselves of the events that the psalmist is rehearsing here. What is he talking about with all of these sentences? Well, the psalmist's record begins in verse 7, shortly after the Israelite exodus from Egypt. Shortly after God had brought his people up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. For 400 years they had been there, away from the land which God had promised to their fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And for some while they had been made into slaves in that land of Egypt. And God brought them out by great miracles, as you can read about in the book of Exodus. Or right next door in the 105th Psalm, you can read about it too. And there they stood having been freed from the house of slavery by the miraculous plagues that God had brought upon the Egyptians. There they stood on the banks of the Red Sea, verse 7, with Pharaoh's army bearing down on them, loath to give up their slaves without a fight. And in one direction is this fierce army of charioteers, and in the other direction is the Red Sea. And so, yes, from a human perspective, things might have seemed hopeless, The Egyptians, it must have looked like, would simply drive them into the sea. And the people railed against Moses for leading them into such peril. That's what verse 7 is talking about. They said that it would have been better just to have stayed in Egypt and remained in their slavery. And again, from a human perspective, perhaps we can sympathize with them. But in verse 7, the psalmist calls their complaining at the edge of the Red Sea, rebellion. Why? Well, presumably because the people ought to have known better. After all, hadn't they just seen all the miraculous plagues which God had poured out on the land of Egypt, on these very Egyptians who are now breathing down their necks in order to bring His people out of their bondage? Hadn't they seen the Nile turned into blood and the Egyptians' cattle struck down by hail and disease? Hadn't they seen the plague of the firstborn? Hadn't they felt the darkness that overspread the land all because God cared about the suffering of His people? Well, then why didn't they believe that God would do it again? Why didn't they believe that He would once again intervene for the sake of His people? When we look at it like that, when we remember all that they have seen God do, we can see why the psalmist calls the Israelites unbelief by the side of the Red Sea with these words, they rebelled by the sea. And yet, listen again to the mercy of God toward His rebellious people in verses 8 through 11. Nevertheless, he saved them for, their, for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. Thus, he rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up, and he led them through the deeps as through the wilderness. So he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them, and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. God did it again. I wonder if any of the Israelites 
along with singing in verse 12 and finally believing God's words in verse 12, I wonder if any of them stood on that far bank of the Red Sea after the waters had calmed and all the Egyptian helmets and breastplates had finally filled with water and sunk below the surface. I wonder if any of them stood there feeling a little bit ashamed. Why am I such a complainer? Why don't I ever believe that God will help me? Why do I keep doubting His words? I wonder if any of us ever feel ashamed like that for our unbelief, which at the end of the day is tantamount to rebellion. Have you not seen God do great things? Have you not seen Him answer prayers? Have you not seen how He has worked good even in your greatest trials? Brothers and sisters, God is good. And so we must, as the King James translates the words of Jesus in John chapter 20, be not faithless, but believing. Be not faithless, but believing. Well, for a season the Israelites were. They believed His words, verse 12. They sang His praise. But then look at verses 13 and 14. They quickly forgot His works. They did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. These verses refer to the way in Numbers chapter 11, the people whined because they had no meat in their diet. Never mind that they were no longer slaves. Never mind that God was daily feeding them with manna from heaven in the middle of the desert. They had to have meat. They craved intensely in the wilderness and they looked back fondly once again on their days in Egypt when fish was on the menu and garlic and melons and so on. And so God gave them meat, verse 15a, a massive flock of quail swept in from the direction of the sea and God made them eat it every day for a month until the sight of it made them sick. And along with the meat, God sent a plague in verse 15b and struck down those who were greedy. And yet in His mercy, He didn't strike them all down. And they enjoyed roasted quail for dinner in spite of their murmuring. I wonder if any of that sounds familiar to us. Murmuring about our food. Craving it so intensely that we sin against God because of it. And yet here we are today, well fed and still under the sound and the influence of His grace. And then in verses 16 through 18 is the account of even more sin among the children of Israel. You may remember the account of the events surrounding Dathan and Abiram and about 250 others in Numbers chapter 16. They weren't satisfied with the leadership structure that God had set up. They wanted to be priests too. They became envious of Moses, verse 16, and of Aaron the Holy One of the Lord. And the majority opinion of the whole congregation seems to have been swayed in their direction in Numbers chapter 16. But the earth opened up, verse 17, and Dathan and Abiram and their families went down into the grave alive. And fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 in Numbers 16 who had conspired with them. Indeed, God was prepared. We're told in that chapter, God was prepared to destroy the whole congregation except for Moses and Aaron. But he relented when those two men prayed for mercy. He was good to the Israelites again in spite of their sin. 
And then in verses 19 through 23, the psalmist recalls an earlier event when Moses was up on the mountain meeting with God. And the people began to wonder, what happened to him? Is he going to come back? And they wanted a God that they could touch and that they could see. And so they convinced Aaron to make them a God like that. And he went along with it. He took all their gold earrings and melted them down and made a golden calf in place of the invisible glorious God. And God, as was also the case in number 16, was prepared to be rid of them all. They deserved it. After all they'd seen and known of the true and spiritual presence of God in their midst, and now they're reimagining Him in the form of a grass-eating ox, they deserved it. But God did not destroy them. He listened to the prayer of Moses again, and He showed mercy to them again. Verse 23. And then there's the incident which the psalmist records in the next few verses, 24 through 27, and which we can read about in the book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14, as the people were on the brink of entering the promised land. Moses, at the Lord's command, sent 12 spies. You remember this story? 12 spies into the land of Canaan to observe the land, to observe its inhabitants, and to come back and give a report so that they could prepare to take the land. Do you remember what happened when the spies got back? They came and they said, the land is every bit as glorious as we've been told. It's flowing with milk and honey. And memorably, in order to demonstrate how good was the produce, they brought back a cluster of grapes that was evidently so large that it had to be carried by two men hanging from a pole. It was a good land. And yet, ten of the twelve spies also came back and said that the inhabitants of the land were too large for us poor little Israelites to possibly overthrow. Never mind what they'd seen God do. The inhabitants of the land are too much for us. They were overcome by fear rather than by faith. And though a valiant man named Caleb gave a rousing speech urging the people to go ahead and take possession of the land, the congregation listened to the ten fearful spies instead of the two faithful ones. And so, verse 24, they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe in His Word, God's Word, who had told them through Moses that He would bring them into this land, and indeed who had promised it to their father Abraham all those centuries before They did not believe in His Word. And so according to the Word of the Lord in verse 26, all that generation perished in the wilderness. Everyone from 20 years old and upward. And then there was the incident of Baal Peor in verses 28 through 31 and Numbers chapter 25 in which the Israelites engaged in sexually promiscuous idolatry and 24,000 of them died in a plague before Phineas, as we read, brought the plague to a halt with the execution of one of the most flagrant fornicators. And then there was also the complaining in the wilderness in verses 32 and 33 concerning a lack of water. And then when the people finally did cross the Jordan to take possession of the pleasant land, which God had promised to Abraham, they did not, verses 34 through 39, they did not thoroughly drive out the pagan inhabitants as God had commanded them to do. 
Instead, they mingled with them. They let their sins rub off on them. They worshipped their idols. They even began sacrificing their own children because that is what they saw their pagan neighbors doing. And I read that and I say, beware, American Christians, living in a time when the church in our culture is becoming more and more like the pagans all around us, mingling with them, not for the purpose of witness and testimony, but because we think their ways are kind of entertaining. Learning their practices, raising our children in much the same ways that they do, spending our money on virtually the same things that they do, valuing entertainment just as much as they do, putting our pocketbooks first many times just like they do, exposing and defiling our bodies in the same ways that our pagan neighbors do, and sometimes literally sacrificing children because that is what the cultural gods of self-actualization and acquisitiveness and personal autonomy require of us. Oh, there is many a professing believer in this country, maybe some in this room of whom it could be said, they became unclean in their practices, verse 39, and played the harlot in their deeds. If that is you this morning, repent and know that God is still patient. You're here today. The earth hasn't opened up and swallowed you yet. There's room this morning for repentance and you need to take advantage. And yet, though there's room for repentance, there is discipline for God's people, verses 40 through 42. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people and He abhorred His inheritance. Then He gave them into the hand of the nations and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them. And they were subdued under their power. Here's the book of Judges unfolding for us in just a few verses of the psalmist's history. As discipline for the Israelites' sin, God began to send the Philistines and the Moabites and the Midianites to oppress his people. To give them all sorts of trouble. Why? Not because God is cruel, not because he doesn't care for his people, but because that is what it would take for them to finally repent. When their crops were destroyed, or when they were under the thumb of some foreign king, finally, the people of Israel, like the prodigal son, would come to their senses. And they would get up out of the pig slop, and they would go back to their heavenly father. And when they did, this is the amazing thing, when they did, over and over in the book of Judges, God would send them a deliverer again. And relieve them of their sorrows. Again, he would send them men like Gideon and Samson and so on. Many times he would deliver them. Verse 43. Many times he would deliver them. But they were like dogs and kept returning to their own vomit. Over and again. Many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel. And so sank down in their iniquity. And we find that not only in the history of the judges, but all the way down through the books of Kings and Chronicles as well. Many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel and so sank down in their iniquity. Nevertheless, verse 44, that's perhaps the most pivotal word in this psalm. We find it in verse 44. And we find it in verse 8. Nevertheless, all this sin in verses 7 through 
43. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. God just kept forgiving and restoring and having compassion and being merciful and hearing prayer over and over and over again. That's practically the whole history of the Old Testament. God being patient with his sinful people. You might think, after all the evidence that the psalmist has piled up about the sins of Israel, all the evidence that we have painfully, perhaps monotonously just rehearsed these last several minutes, you might think that after all of that, God would eventually have just thrown up his hands and given up on these fickle, unbelieving, undeserving, rebellious people. In fact, that is part of the exercise of slogging through all these wearisome verses of sinful history, just to show us how justified God would have been to do that. Just to wipe His hands of these people and be done with His mercy to sinners. But the psalmist isn't willing to presume such a thing about his God. The psalmist has read his Bible and seen too much mercy and too much compassion and too much faithfulness on the part of the Lord to presume that He will abandon His people now, even after all they've sinned. Yes, they have sinned again, verse 6, like their father, so much so that the land has finally spewed them out, just like God said that it would, so that He is writing this psalm from somewhere far away from the land that God promised to Abraham. God has been righteously angry with His people, and they are getting the discipline that is coming to them and the psalmist understands and accepts all of that. He knows that they have been just as perverted as their fathers were and just as deserving of God's discipline, even his wrath. Nevertheless, the psalmist has seen too much of God's goodness to presume that God has abandoned his people forever. He's read too much of God's mercy and his faithfulness in the pages of the Old Testament Testament to presume that God has shut his ears to his people's cries of repentance. And so he issues the cry, verse 47, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. God is patient towards sinners. Now, none of this is to say that because God is so patient with sinners that it's okay to keep on sinning. No, verse 3 reminds us that obedience is a better way. And so just because God is merciful towards sinners and faithful towards sinners doesn't mean that sin is no big deal. No, no, verse 3, how blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. That's better. Nor does the continual patience of God with sinners mean that God is a pushover who doesn't finally have the will to damn anyone. That's far from the truth as well. Witness Dathan and Abiram in this psalm, for instance. The lake of fire will be filled with sinners. Old Testament Jews, New Testament Gentiles, and many billions after them who refuse to repent. But the psalmist would say to us, and the rest of the Bible would agree, that there will be no one in the lake of fire who actually did repent. 
That's the message of this psalm. And repentance is the key. The psalmist is not painting a picture of a God who always lets people get away with just about anything so long as they bat their eyes and say pretty please to him. No, no. God rescues people who, with the psalmist in verse 6, truly repent. And many as a person, even the sort of person sometimes who thinks he's going to heaven, many as a person who refuses to repent, and therefore who won't be treated the way God treats the people in this psalm. Don't read this psalm or hear this sermon and think that God is a pushover and that you'll get away with anything. Only those who repent should expect to find His mercy at the last day. But the main point of the psalm is that everyone who does repent will assuredly find His mercy. The main point of this psalm is that in spite of all of our sins, in spite of all of our failures, as long as we have breath in this world, there is a way back to God because He is patient and compassionate towards sinners. The point of this psalm is that God is good to people in spite of their sins. Over and over again, the children of Israel sinned against the Lord, murmuring, complaining, worshiping idols, refusing His good gifts, slaughtering their own children, and so on. And over and over again, when they cried out for mercy, He was merciful to them in spite of all that. Indeed, not only did He forgive them when they repented, but it was His kindness often through the rod of discipline, that led them to repentance. Even before they repented, God was showing them mercy and working for their good and bringing them back so that they would repent. And I say to you that this God is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is still doing good to sinners in spite of themselves. He is still willing to forgive everyone who repents and who believes in the name of His Son. And He's still working, even before we repent and before we believe, to bring us to a place where we will. As Mark Altroge has written, and as we just sang to our God, You did not wait for me to cry out to you, but you let me hear your voice calling me. And as Altroge has also written in that song, not only does God allow us to hear His voice before we ever call out with our own, but God took the initiative to save us while we were yet sinners by clothing Himself with frail humanity in the person of Jesus and by enduring the cross and by seeking and saving that which was lost. Indeed, if you want proof this morning that God is still in the business of being merciful and faithful to people in spite of their sins, then look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ, where God himself came in the second person of the Trinity to absorb all the Father's holy wrath against us. And as Altroja's song says, and as Romans 5.8 teaches us, God did not wait for us to draw near to him before he did that. God did not wait for us to clean up our acts before he sent us a Savior. No, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here is God's faithfulness to His people, His mercy to us, His compassion and His love toward us, not only in spite of our sin, but while we were still in the midst of our sin. He sent Christ to die for us. And I urge you, I urge you to put your faith in a God like that today and in His Son. The psalmist knew that God was going to come someday and deliver His chosen people from their exile in sin. But he wasn't content simply to know that God is faithful to his people in spite of their sin. He wanted to make sure that he himself was in on that mercy. 
And so listen to how he prays in verses 4 and 5. Remember me, O Lord, in your favor towards your people. Visit me with your salvation, that I may see the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Did you hear it? The psalmist isn't content to think about and then go away knowing that God is compassionate on his sinful people in general. He wants to make sure that he himself is among those who receive the mercy. And you must be the same. You mustn't be content to walk away today and go, oh, isn't it wonderful that God is compassionate towards sinners? You make sure that you repent and that you're among those who receive that compassion. Remember me, O Lord, in your favor to your people. Or, in the words of the old hymn written by Fanny Crosby, Pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Here is the heartbeat of the psalmist as he sits in the land of exile. Lord, save your people, verse 47. And Lord, verses 4 and 5, save me. Save me. And that should be the heartbeat of everyone who has seen in God what the psalmist saw in him, namely his faithfulness to his people, even in spite of their sins. I hope that's your heartbeat today. And I urge you, if you have never done so before, to pray even today like the psalmist does in verses 4 and 5. Remember me, O Lord, in your favor toward your people. Visit me with your salvation that I may see the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. And if you have prayed this way in times gone by, but you've slidden back like Israel so that you're not what you once were and you're not what you should be, you earnestly pray those words with the psalmist today too. Indeed, whoever you are and whatever your sin, believe this very moment in the provision that God has made for your sins in the death of His Son. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and pray with the psalmist. Remember me, O Lord, in your favor toward your people. Visit me with your salvation. And then before we finish, we must notice the psalmist prays as well. He doesn't just see God's faithfulness and his mercy towards sinners. And he doesn't just ask for it for himself, but he extols it. He praises God. He gives thanks. Verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord or can show forth all His praise. And the same sort of thing at the end of the psalm. Verse 48. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. And that should be our heartbeat too. Indeed, that is one of the reasons, the psalmist says in verse 47, why the Lord saves His people to begin with. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. We don't just want to come back to the promised land. We don't just want to be saved for our benefit. We want you to save us so that we will praise you like we ought to. Here is why God saved you. Here is why He's prepared to save you today. So that you might sing. So that you might give thanks. So that you might glory in His praise. So that you might say with the psalmist in verse 1, Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His loving kindness is everlasting.